as NASA and SpaceX prepare to make history with the Demo-2 mission and the return of astronauts launching from U.S. soil, we are going back into our Talkie Space archives to release never-before-heard episodes related to the special upcoming launch. This episode, we go back to March of 2019, when Talking Space was at the Kennedy Space Center for the launch of Demo-1, the uncrewed version of this upcoming flight. Enjoy this episode recorded March 2019. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is a very special Talking Space, recorded the week of Monday, March 11th, 2019. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. I can't wait to go ahead and get into this episode because we're devo- this is a very rare moment where we're just devoting this episode to one topic and one topic only and gosh darn it it's it's about a, a piece of history that occurred just last week and I can't wait to start talking about it because there are just so many nuances to this story and Sawyer, you were there to pick up a lot of stuff for us, and I want to say thank you on the outset for doing that and supporting the listeners. Absolutely. It was some of the craziest 36 hours of my life, and I would do it all again in a heartbeat. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we have mainly one focus tonight, and we will begin with a launch roundup of one important launch to get us into our topic. And that was in the very early morning hours of Saturday, March 2nd, 2019, at 2.49 a.m. Eastern Time, a Falcon 9 rocket, Block 5 version, carrying the first-ever Crew Dragon capsule, successfully lifting off from the Kennedy Space Center, lighting up the night sky, and on its way towards history. Now, this was the first crew-ready, American-built commercial vehicle to launch from 39A, and from U.S. soil for that matter. This was the first crew orbital-ready vehicle to launch from American soil since the space shuttle in 2011, and this was also the first ever commercial crew-capable vehicle to dock with the International Space Station. So a lot of firsts in this mission, and of course this, the Demo-1 flight, which is basically leading the way to make everything ready for crew to start launching from U.S. soil to live aboard the International Space Station. Yeah, Sawyer, the uh, the SpaceX Dragon or the SpaceX Crew Dragon is uh, actually two small, two smaller spacecrafts in one. the uh, The capsule itself is about sixteen feet tall. It's about thirteen feet in diameter. Uh, it has in the back a trunk, which instead of having the the large solar panels that kind of extend out the way the current version of Dragon does, the uh, the panels are sort of embedded into the trunk, which makes it a little nicer actually from a from an, at least from an aesthetic standpoint. But also it it basically minimizes, in my opinion, uh, the idea of you know having a, a a problem with the unfurling of of a set of solar panels you don't have to worry about that they're already embedded on there so another 
words somebody's thinking when they go ahead and design these things. The trunk is about 12 feet tall and 12 feet in diameter, and just like the um, it, its counterpart on the uh, cargo side, it too can be fitted with uh, with some cargo in there. In fact, sorry if I'm not mistaken, there was about 400 pounds of uh, actual cargo that was put on board uh this particular dragon to be sent up to the International Space Station. So, indeed, this was not just, you know, a test flight. It was actually doing some work. Right, and I should point out this is cargo. This was not meant to be any science experiments to bring up. And, in fact, in an interview with the scientists, they said, we're not sending science up on this yet. We've got plenty of resupply vehicles. It's a test flight. But, you know, it's got simulant for all the mass that it's going to carry up. And it helped with the test as well, and never hurts to bring up supplies. Dragon can hold about seven individuals uh, and is designed to fly totally autonomously or by itself. And that was part of the, uh, the test here to see if it actually could go off and do that. And by all accounts so far, uh, by all looks, I mean, shoot, it, it performed just absolutely flawlessly. As far as far as I could see on uh, on the television coverage and and all that, exactly. And in all the press conferences, of course, Elon, you know, saying this is great, but I'm not going to be able to breathe until it splashes down safely in the ocean. Which, thankfully, just six days after launch, this past Friday, it did successfully undock and splash down in the Atlantic Ocean, not the Pacific, like many in the past right off the coast of Cape Canaveral, and the uh, Crew Dragon capsule, by the way, is now at Port Canaveral, right near where it took off, which, a change from capsules past. I think the reason reason why they went ahead and did it the way they did it, meaning splashing down the Atlantic, was to get that thing back home really, really fast. And I think, Sawyer, going forward, that's the game plan for the crew missions, No. Exactly. They actually have a sort of zone cordoned off in the Atlantic, which they've deemed their splashdown zone, of which they'll have all their ships and everything ready to come back, grab the crew, and from what they were saying, not only be able to get the crew back quickly, but any time-sensitive experiments, anything like that, they'll be able to get it back within a matter of hours. Yeah, exactly. And one of the, the other features on one of the uh, the recovery vessels, if I'm not mistaken, is the fact that it does have a heliport. And right underneath that heliport, uh, if I remember from the coverage, is a set of medical facilities in the event the crew really needs it. Uh, they could go ahead and do that. If not, they were just simply get their medical checkouts the same way we do now on uh, uh, when folks come back from Soyuz, you know, on, on a Soyuz. Now, uh, there was so much to this mission, and we've got so many different interviews with people, and they were great about getting sound, you know, people to help give you guys a better insight into this mission and all the things going on. We're talking a little bit about it, but we are talking space, and one thing that we take pride in is the sound of the launch itself. So, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead, and I know you're all waiting for it. We're going to play that amazing launch sound, and I do want to talk about it after. But if you're in the car, as we all like to say, crank up your stereo, turn that bass up. If you've got your headphones on, blast it as loud as your ears can safely go, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Enjoy.
So I hope that little snippet there conveys how just unreal the sound of this launch in particular was. You can go back to some of our past episodes. We've had a few SpaceX launches of a Block 3, a Block 4, the Block 4 full thrust. If you know anything about the different progressions of how they've evolved the Falcon 9, this is the first time Talking Space has been there for a Falcon 9 Block 5, which SpaceX calls their final iteration, their final upgrades to their Falcon 9 rocket. And I thought the four full thrust was loud. My goodness, did this blow this out of the water. And a bunch of the people I was there with who have been there for past SpaceX launches and for past Block 5 launches were even saying, this is unlike anything I've heard before. The Just the intensity of how loud it was. And there was basically no wind, basically no clouds. So you're not getting the reverberation off of the clouds. You're not getting the wind blowing the sound towards you. This was just the raw sound with clear air, clear sky, no wind, no clouds. And and I don't want to say this, but the only way I can say it is this is the closest I've heard to the rumble and the closest I've felt to the rumble of shuttle since STS-135. That was was essentially the question I was going to ask you. How does it measure up to, say, those those three RS-25 engines and uh, those two SRBs that that would light up during shuttle? It's... Again, I haven't really been able to feel that vibration that you get from the SRB since. This is as close as it's come. And that includes other missions that have used solid rocket motors like the, you know, Atlas and Delta. And it's not even close. The the noise level was ear piercing. The intensity was that chest rumble that I've missed so much. And it just kept going. And the crackling kept getting louder and louder and almost to the point of painful, but in a good way. <laughs> and just the brightness of it, too, was unreal, because I was, you know, looking at a camera lens, which is going to focus the light a little more directly in your eye, but, you know, I went blind for about half a second with how bright it was when it first ignited, and then it just lit up the sky. It made the air fear feel full, is the way that I can think of to describe it. It's just the air felt very full of noise, full of life, full of energy, full of the future just pulsing through you. And it went on for a good two and a half minutes there of rumble in total. You said there was something else too unique. We were talking during the pre-show and unfortunately I wasn't there to join you, but uh, uh, you were, you were pointing out a few other unique features of this particular ascent, including the fact that the vehicle to your vantage point was just going straight up for the longest time. I know a lot of photographers there that they like to capture what's called the streak shot, where they leave the lens open and you get the giant bright streak showing the trace of how the rocket went. So many people I know did not get the streak shot because it got cut off. Normally these rockets will go up a little bit and then start to arc over or turn so that it can work its way towards a more circular orbit. This one... It went pretty much straight up for the longest time. I think when I really started to see any form of arcing over was right around the time of the first stage cutoff and separation. So by the time the second stage kicked in is finally when I noticed, okay, now it's arcing over a little bit. And that's two and a half, three minutes into flight at that point, of which I do have to say it was so beyond clear that night that we could see that separation and actually see the first stage starting to turn itself a little bit and, you know, angle itself to return to a 
the barge floating in the Atlantic Ocean. But man, that thing shot straight up for the most part. And I have to ask, you know, did the uh, the uh, first stage kind of herald its arrival? Was it was it any louder than than before because of the the atmospheric conditions? No, seen... because it was a uh, it was not a landing zone one landing. It was a barge ah, landing. Okay. So the first barge landing I saw was the first ever successful barge landing, CRS eight, and that one you could not see it. It was too bright out that day, and there was a little bit of haze, so. That made it a little more difficult. But on this one, this is the first time I've ever seen a booster landing from Cape Canaveral. In fact, there's you could see, you know, the first of the three burns, basically. And then the, the biggest one that I remember is it was doing its basically final slowdown before the main landing burn. So there's a slowdown kind of burn and then the entry burn and then the landing burn. So with the entry burn... You know, we're looking up and all of a sudden, son of a gun, there it is. You can see it clearly lighting up the sky. Normally, so far away and distant, you don't get to see that. And I don't know if the trajectory of it going straight up had anything to do with it. But all of a sudden, you see it and I'm looking. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm actually getting pictures of it. And something in my head made me say, what if I zoom out the camera? I zoomed out the camera and you could actually see this is just pretty much how straight up and down it went in one frame with a, you know, 300 millimeter lens, so it's a pretty big size lens, zoomed out as far as it could, you could get the booster and the launch pad in one frame, and I'll include that wow. in the show notes. And Oh, wow. Yeah, I, again, straight up and down for the most part, which is so unusual, because normally it's arced over so far that you don't have a shot at seeing it, and it was amazing. And if I recall too, sir, this was an instantaneous launch window. If they, they blew this, they would have to wait till, till the following day. Uh, no, they had a four-day wait because of uh, window of oh, opportunity that's right. at the space station. They, that's right. Their in, their increments were basically in four-day increments if it didn't launch the first time. And after the third attempt, they would have to give way for other missions. So, And yet, again, it's a demo flight. It's a test flight. Test flights don't go on the first time. They don't go on the first launch, especially when you have an instantaneous window. And yet it did. And it worked <laughs> perfectly. <laughs> Yeah, and I think too that kind of set the stage for the rest of the mission, uh, because the the following following few hours uh, we were we were really really given a good idea of of watching this vehicle kind of strut its stuff uh, as it approached the International Space Station. There was some glorious uh, pictures being taken by the crew, but there to watch this thing go through its paces because I believe they were docking from a different angle. Because that's where where the uh, this particular uh, area on on the ISS was. Uh, they were using the same basically the same docking area that had been the last time it had been used was by shuttle Atlantis. That's where the this particular docking adapter was. This is also the first time that the international docking adapter had been used before, if I'm not mistaken, on this. Correct. Right. And um, also and also the first ever autonomous docking at all at the space station, too. Th that's correct. And it you, you'd never know it because the spacecraft performed like a champ all the way all the way there. There was one point where it um, had to receive a command from the International Space Station basically to say back off. And they received a command from uh, issued from the ISS, basically telling Dragon, 
okay, we need you to back off here for a moment because this just in case there's something they can't they can't pinpoint or there's something they just don't like about the docking. They can go ahead and tell the spacecraft to say, hey, why don't we just kind of like sit this one out for a little bit? So it they, they basically told Dragon to just back off, and they, it did. Um, it backed off to about uh, 180 meters away from, from the ISS, and that's where a hold command was issued. And Dragon obediently held at that 180 meter point and uh, uh, was then told, okay, you can come back in. And lo and behold, it came in. And I'm watching this. And Sawyer, I know you were watching this too. Um, It was very, in in my eyes, it was was kind of very 2001-esque. That's the best way I could put it. I can almost hear the Blue Danube playing as it as it was approaching the International Space Station. But um, and and this was all, all of these maneuvers were really really important, not only for to demonstrate that the the spacecraft can obey commands from the International Space Station in the event something was going wrong, but also um, if I'm not mistaken. This model of the uh, of the crew dragon, or this model of the dragon, excuse me, is going to basically displace the current one that they're flying for cargo, and essentially that the the crew dragon and the cargo dragon are basically going to be one vehicle um, or one you know configuration, and they were going to be using the same configuration and this same setup to fly cargo as well. So this was a huge step to make sure that Dragon can behave and behave well because it's going to be flying autonomously and and you know flying cargo autonomously as well. So this that was a real big quiver in, in the in the cap. And I should point out too that um well SpaceX had a passenger on board, did it not, Sawyer? It had two passengers on board in a way. Yeah, yes. and one of, and one of them got kidnapped. <laughs> the one that none of us knew about, too. Yes. So on board was Ripley. I, I they don't want to call it a test dummy. They gave it some other silly SpaceX acronym, just like ASDS for the drone ship. They had some nickname for it, but basically a test dummy with a whole bunch of instruments inside of her used to test. And yes, it was her used to test all of the stresses to test the atmosphere inside the cabin, what it would be like for the actual crew. And in case you're wondering, the name was after the main character in the Alien film franchise. But yes, Ripley was on board. And the one thing that was fascinating when we were talking about Ripley is that Ripley wasn't giving all of its data real time. It was only doing a little bit of data downlink. Most of it was basically, they're like, we're going to assume that this capsule is going to work perfectly. And if it crashes and we lose Ripley, we lose pretty much all the data. Is under the impression I was under from what they were saying that they weren't live streaming all that data. They're like, yeah, Ripley's going to store it and we'll come grab it out of her once we pull her out of the ocean. Yeah, the I believe the the what they were calling it in in, in SpaceX and NASA E's was the anthropomorph the anthropomorphic there I got that out uh test device or AT or ATD 
but they, you know, calling it an ATD or something like that, they wanted to humanize the thing, so they called it called it Ripley. And I believe the um, it was, as you said, Sawyer, they they were not transmitting a lot of data in real time. But I mean, this thing was actually wired with a with a microphone too inside the helmet, because it was wearing the infamous uh, SpaceX spacesuit. Um, and I guess too, they wanted to find out what this what a crew member would be hearing at certain points in in the mission as well during launch, during docking, during you know reentry, that kind of thing. Um, and also what kind of G's was the vehicle, you know, enduring, but also what was, was Ripley feeling as well. And if I recall exactly during the coverage, uh, those seats inside the crew dragon, they actually can, well, actuate or move and to help the astronaut absorb less of the G forces. So it'd be interesting to see how those actuators kind of worked and if they performed the way they were supposed to in reducing some of the G's that that uh, an astronaut would encounter. I think they I, sorry, I don't know if, if, if they talked about what how many G's did they expect um, during launch and during reentry. I think it was only about maybe three, three G's. From what I remember, they were saying three or three and a half. Right, so it'd be interesting to see if um, if that's exactly what they recorded, or did they record more or less? So, um, it, it it would be very very interesting to see that data. Oh, absolutely! And then of course there was the uh, the one that we had no clue was going on board. In fact, the company that made it had no clue was going on board. Is there was basically a little mini stuffed Earth that Elon had tweeted out of. Oh, by the way, we have a little zero G indicator that's going up. It's a little stuffed smiley Earth. And again, the company that makes these did not, apparently did not know that it was going on board either until they completely sold out on their website. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, to to kind of define what that is, you know, if anybody's familiar with a lot of the Soyuz launches. What will happen is that the commander, uh, the Soyuz commander, will bring along a little talisman for, and and tie it up on the console, and it would essentially act as a zero g indicator. Basically, when that thing starts flopping around, you know you're you're basically in in microgravity conditions and in orbit, and uh, it's usually um, a toy that maybe the the family from. Uh, the uh, a, a crew member might have and and so on. Uh, I think everything's been flown on, on on these things, but it's usually usually like a stuffed animal or something that that uh, that one of the the children of the crew members are, are very very fond of. And um, in this instance, Elon decided at the last second to include this little plush Earth uh, thing in there and. Um, it has been used now on the International Space Station by uh, by uh, Anne McLean in in certain shots and so on, and I believe it's scheduled for a retrieval. Initially, we thought it was going to come back down. Um, it didn't. It stayed behind on the International Space Station, and I believe uh, it's due to come back with the uh, DM the DM two crew. So I guess Bob Banken's going to bring that. Uh, uh, that uh, little critter back home to Earth. 
Yeah, and Wally's been up there. I mean, he was helping Anne test out her spacesuit for the upcoming all-female spacewalk. Uh, they were testing out after a leak, so, you know, had the little gas mask on, had the goggles on. They was helping to do science experiments. He was staring out the cupola windows. It's it, Her Twitter account has become just a plethora of adorable photos this little Earth the week that it was up there. There's a lot to this, because, again, you know, all... It looked like a perfectly clean mission from everything we could see. The real test is going to be that, and then some upgrades and things they're going to have to make before crew flies on it again. So, I'm just going to toss this out there. Um, I know Steve Stitch and his um, his uh, uh, commentary after the launch, or not after launch, excuse me, after splashdown, basically said the following. He said he didn't really see anything that could be a showstopper for dm2 now everybody kind of took that as you know oh shoot we're gonna launch in in june or july um not so fast uh there are still some some things that they have to sort out on on the dm2 uh spacecraft uh, there are still some issues. There's still some dangling participles that they've got to go ahead and take care of on that spacecraft to allow people to fly on that. So don't take that as gospel. Don't take that as the fact that you know they are going to fly this thing in the June July time frame as as said. I just want to put that out there because a lot of individuals in the media kind of ran with that and said, "Oh yeah, they're going to fly in June July." Well, let's see what happens. Because again, they have to go through all of that data that that was uh, recorded by the spacecraft and by Ripley uh, to basically say, "Okay, was everything within spec?" And grant you, you know, Sawyer, by all accounts, everything was in spec. And to me, it looked like you could not have asked for a better test flight. I mean, it looked like it passed um, everything pretty much with flying colors. It, it didn't look to me, at least from my semi-educated eye, that there was any showstoppers during the entire flight. However, we'll see what the data says and we'll see what uh, what was recorded. But so far, so good. I mean, you got to hand it to everybody that worked on this thing. You've got to hand it to SpaceX for the vision they had to make this work and work very well indeed. You have to go ahead and hand it to the NASA partners that worked extraordinarily hard to make all, all of this work. And you've got to hand it to the individuals that put this in motion. Um, if you really want to go all the way back technically, you have to give credit to Mike Griffin because he was the one who really, really put this whole whole program into into motion, at least from the cargo side side of it. And it kind of, the the commercial crew side of it kind of grew out of the cargo um, end of it. So if you really want really want to give kudos to anybody. Um, I'm going to go on record and say you might want to consider, you know, giving him a little bit of a pat on the back and saying, yeah, this is what, uh, you know, it, he was he was partially responsible. But again, everybody in the commercial crew program, everybody on the SpaceX side, bravo, congratulations. You put us one step further into uh, sending U.S. citizens from U.S. soil and getting the Eagle to, to go ahead and fly in space again. So everybody, congratulations. 
Exactly. And I mean, that, that's the biggest push with this whole commercial crew program is getting Americans back to space and American rockets, which is supposed to make it cheaper and theoretically safer as well and more reliable. And uh, that, that was one of the main points of discussion in all the different interviews and things that we had. Uh, and I want to play some clips from some of these. So the first thing that they gave us, it was originally going to be one-on-ones, but we ended up getting uh, a small little gaggle together, I guess is the term for it. And uh, in it, they allowed us to speak with Bob Cabana, who is the director of the Kennedy Space Center, as well as Mark Geyer, who is the director of the Johnson Space Center, both obviously heavily involved with the launching and training of commercial crew. And uh, one thing I, that I found really interesting is we're talking about leaving our reliance upon the Russians and relying only on the Soyuz, which we have right now. And one of the questions that came up is, what does this mean for the future of Americans on Soyuz rockets? And what about Russians on commercial crew? Yeah, I think it was Mark Geyer that discussed that a little bit. And uh, Gene, how about we go ahead and uh, play a little bit what he was saying about that? Sounds good. Yes, because their integrated operations are still with the Russians. And as you know, we'll do, we'll do um, the way we work this is that we will fly eventually as we get into this cadence. There'll be a Russian on our flights, and we'll still have an American on a Soyuz flight. <coughs> and that's mainly because we always want, in case there are issues with either system, that we have an integrated crew. Right? This is our plan. It was our plan before. It is our plan now that we get commercial crew. So in Russian, will still be important. Uh, and they learn English as well, right? Because we have integrated operations on board station. And when we get into the cadence of actually flying, when the commercial crew flights are create, actually providing ISS crew members long term, there will be Russians on the flight. Yeah. And an American on, on the Soyuz. Yeah, yeah. So it's still crazy to me to think that, yes, we're going to still be flying with Russia, but Russia can also be flying with us. So, I mean, the big thing about this capsule now is that with four people being able to be launched, this can up the crew size on board the station from, you know, six to seven or more appropriately from three to four on the U.S. slash ESA side. Right, because I believe, Sawyer, if I'm not mistaken, that four seats will be guaranteed for for um, U.S. astronauts, period. The other seats will go to ESA, Russia, JAXA, anybody else that is participating, you know, a participating scientist on the mission. But Sawyer, as you pointed out, the, having this capability increases the crew size on the International Space Station from six to seven. Uh, now, now, picture this. You're always, you're working on your car and you're, it, it's just you and you're saying, gosh darn it, I wish I had a second set of hands to go ahead and do X, Y, and Z. Now you got that second set of hands on the International Space Station uh, just to do, you know, even maintenance tasks, but also to do science. I believe, too, Sawyer, if, if I'm not mistaken, the thought is that just having that one additional crew member could actually double the science output on the International Space Station. Exactly. And, you know, they're talking about how they can allocate more science time and spread it out and you know, with different astronauts with different specialties can take different science experiments to it. So, yeah, I mean, this will mean a lot for science aboard station is just having that one extra person, you know, that's an extra few hours a day of manpower to do more science. Yeah, agreed. And, well, 
Oh, boy. To take this back to Russia a little bit, uh, there was a nuance here of, of this story that I wanted to get out there. Uh, Russia was not exactly, well, shall we say, they were kind of suffering from sour grape syndrome is the best way I can put it. Um, because I think, too, they're, they're kind of sensing that the, the gravy train that was started after um, – um, after shuttle had ended back in July of 2011, was about to end. Uh, back then, I think we were paying about $65 million a seat to launch uh, crew members. It has since, you know, gone up incrementally to almost like $90 million a seat. And that has, that that's almost at an end at this point. Uh, so I think, too, Russia's kind of worried about not having that, shall I say, uh, cash flow, if you will. And uh, I think there was a little bit of a sour grapes issue over there, too, because not to beat around the bush, they they actually had some some emergency procedures for their crew member to follow in the event that Dragon could not be stopped and crashed into the International Space Station, which was extraordinarily unlikely but they had those they had him often in in the russian segment during during the procedure and he he came back in i believe to assist with uh uh any of the the post docking procedures in fact he um he was featured in, in the coverage but initially um I thought that that was that was the game plan. He was supposed to be in the Russian segment for most of that, or at least far away. And in a way, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. In a way, I can I can maybe understand it because of their mirror um, experience, where you know you had that one incident where you did have a cargo vehicle crash into the uh, facility and. I kind of think maybe that might have been in the back of their head. I was going to go ahead and just put that out there. But by the same token, too, I think actually, too, is a little bit of sour grapes. I'm going to leave that up to uh, you folks to decide. And maybe, Sawyer, if you want to go ahead and, and comment on that a little bit, it would be appreciated. I don't know if I want to get involved in this one. But <laughs> it was very interesting to see the tweets that were originally sent out in Russian and the tweets that were sent out in English. I'll say that and. They're about face, but it's also just reaffirms the, uh, I guess, the final comfort that we're getting closer to not having to rely 100% on Russia. And the interesting thing through all of this is we're not just talking about not relying on Russia. We're not relying on NASA either. And this is a point right. that NASA officials made multiple times throughout the day leading up to launch. And even after launch, they were specifying that in this mission, it is not a NASA mission. NASA is just a customer. And it's always fascinating just the fact how much they kept emphasizing. This isn't ours. This is SpaceX. Eventually, it'll also be Boeing. And on all these missions, we are just the customer paying to go on it. Now, Elon mentioned something very interesting in the post-launch press conference saying, you know, when someone asked who are these other, you know, these other people that might be taking part, who are these other customers? He's like, well, right now it's just NASA. We designed, <laughs> we worked, we spent so much time talking with NASA. We designed all this with NASA in mind. So 
basically NASA's our one customer, and that's kind of the way it's going to stay for a bit. Yeah, I know. I know uh, Jim Bridenstine likes to say that NASA is just going to be one customer among customer among many, but right now it's sort of like, okay, who's the other clients? And right now it's just it's just the U.S. government. It's just you and everybody else, Mister and Mrs. Taxpayer, and and that's that's the bottom line. Right. But at the same time, you know, in that same press conference with Mark Iyer and Bob Cabana, I believe it was Bob Cabana that talked about how, you know, this option of having commercial crew now just gives the entire private sector a new destination of being able to privately send people up to the space station. I think we actually have a clip from him talking about that. People talk about government space and commercial space. It's not one or the other. If we're going to be successful, we need both of them integrated together. This is a true partnership, and we have to continue to develop that and maintain that partnership. And again, that, that was just the theme all day, and I, I just found that a really interesting aspect. Yeah, the, the other thing, too, I'll, I'll put out there is that this launch vehicle, or this launch vehicle, this spacecraft, too, is a heck of a lot different from shuttle. You don't have the vehicle launching side saddle the way you had w with uh, with shuttle anymore. There is an actual crew escape system that is rather robust on board Dragon and on board CST, uh, what, the CST-100 Starliner. It's a very, very... These, these two spacecraft are very, very different spacecraft. And I believe, um, sorry if I'm not mistaken, um, Bob Cabana talked a little bit about the shuttle versus the capsule designs and why they they were they, these particular designs were selected. He did, and it's quite appropriate considering, in case you are unaware, Bob Cabana was a space shuttle astronaut and at one point in charge of the astronaut office before eventually becoming the director of the Kennedy Space Center, which he's held for a few years now. So he's flown on shuttle. He has sent people to fly on shuttle, and he really had an interesting point about the safety features and the advancements and his thoughts on the whole capsule design, and let's go ahead and play that. Oh. So, first off, we ended up with capsules for a commercial crew because a capsule is much more robust and it could be done much quicker than a winged vehicle, and we needed the capability to fly crews to the space station. So the capsule designs won out because they could get done faster and uh, less complicated and more robust, all right? But I look at uh, CRS-2 mission right now for cargo to the International Space Station, and one of the providers on that is Sierra Nevada with their Dream Chaser. And just as uh, SpaceX utilized the cargo contract to help develop their crewed vehicle, you know, we may see in the future that this cargo winged vehicle can eventually become a crewed vehicle also. So we'll see. Um, you know, I kind of like landing on a runway uh, as opposed to coming down under a parachute. But you know, I think the key is we have the capability to fly our crews in the most uh, efficient, safest manner. And it's going to continue to evolve. Um, you know, the space shuttle was an amazing vehicle. You, we talk about reusable rockets. We flew a reusable rocket for 30 years you know, the space shuttle. Uh, the only thing we didn't reuse was the external tank. Everything else was uh, totally reusable. Very complex, amazing machine, all right? But um, 
we made the decision to move on to explore beyond our home planet, to commercialize low Earth orbit, and take the funds that we had to focus on that really difficult task of exploring, all right? Getting back to the moon and on to Mars, what's on Mars? So, you know, I, you can compare all you want. Um, you know, I think eventually, <coughs> down the road, we'll have wing vehicles also flying crews to and from uh, low Earth orbit, landing on runways. But I think the, the two systems that we have right now um, they're both different in many ways, they're similar in many ways. And the key is developing a safe, robust, reusable system that we can reliably get our crews to the uh, space station with in the, uh, in the fastest time. You know, vehicles are different, some require more work than others, but the key is uh, knowledge and uh, doing the right thing. And that's not to say it's without risk. Just because it's a capsule on top of a rocket as opposed to a wing vehicle on the side of a rocket, there are still huge risks in our, our business, all right? But uh, you know, one of the things that we've designed into both these vehicles is, you know, in the shuttle there were black zones. There were places as we launched to orbit where if we had certain failures, it was not survivable. And one of the keys that we put on this contract was there will be no black zone. It will be survivable for any failure for the crew from liftoff to main engine cutoff on orbit. And I, I think that's a, that's a huge plus. So I just want you to know we're working really hard to certify these vehicles uh, so that, you know, we'd feel safe climbing in them. And uh, I haven't... Having been chief of the astronaut office and, and assigned crews to go fly in space, let me tell you, it's a whole lot easier to do it yourself than ask somebody else to do it, knowing the, the risks that you take. And I just want to make sure that we do our very best to take care of our crews, and we're doing that. If you had a chance to go up, would you do that? Absolutely. I'd, go on, I'd do anything to get out of going to another meeting. <laughs> and again, there is that whole thing of you're not sticking it on the side of a fuel tank anymore, and while it seems like capsules aren't the way to go, you know, it, like you were saying, it's he was kind of trying to not say it's the cheaper way to do it, but in a way, it's cheaper, but that means that they can also put more of that money into safety, and it's a proven design, I think is how he was trying to get around the whole it sounding antiquated, but this ain't your mama's or your papa's capsule anymore, that's for sure. Again, like you were talking about, the fact that the launch escape system isn't a tower or something that needs to be jettisoned off the top like on the Soyuz or like it was on Apollo. And the fact that it actually has one in general and like the space shuttle built into it is a fantastic capability and it makes it safer, less things to get rid of and jettison and just more backup safety options. So while it seems like an older design, they can fit so much more new tech into it to make that safety. And it made a lot more sense hearing him explain it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you take a look at uh, the Crew Dragon as compared to, you know, Apollo or Shuttle, you don't see, gosh darn it, you don't see one circuit breaker at all in uh, in Crew Dragon. It is all touch panel kind of controls and and so on. It is a thoroughly modern, thoroughly, you know, 21st century spacecraft as opposed to, you know, the, the, the hundreds and 
thousands of of circuit breakers that surrounded you in the in in the shuttle cockpit or even you know the 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 few hundred circuit breakers that you were presented with on Apollo. These and the are... one thing that the one thing that Doug Hurley said in relation to that is fascinating. He will be flying on Demo Two and also flew on the final space shuttle mission. He was saying that when you're in the shuttle, there are hundreds of switches everywhere, and if you accidentally bump the wrong one, you could make it a really bad day. Yeah. He he was saying I think in total I think he said there are about forty physical switches in the entire capsule, and everything else is touchscreen, computerized, or automated, as opposed to the hundreds just on next to their elbows in the uh, shuttle cockpit, and that right there, a huge advancement and safety since you can't just accidentally bump the wrong switch yeah i mean i mean spacex really really thought this out and they really really went to uh to great pains to go ahead and 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 make sure things were kind of ergonomic and that that's what why the crew was brought in to make comments and to make changes and uh i'm sure too even with the touch panels once once they get up and rolling there may be even changes to the software that will be installed on that so the panels may be laid out a little differently. We did get a little bit of a taste of what, what those panels would look like during the, the, the coverage, especially during docking, because uh, uh, a lot of the graphics that uh, were being displayed on the coverage were you know, sort of simulated graphics of what you would see if you were on board Dragon. So um, it was you know quite an eye-opener to what you're usually seeing on board on board a uh, a US spacecraft. So again, hats off to SpaceX. They really did a good job on 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 the layout. Exactly. And I do just want to point out just to be fair to both sides, Boeing as well, very similar <clears throat> when we were down at the Johnson Space Center and we got the tour there, we got to go inside the uh physical simulator that they used to train with docking as well as the just see the software that's being used of which we were not allowed to take pictures of the actual screens, but from what we saw on the SpaceX live stream to what was just seen in person with the Boeing mock-up, similar idea. Get rid of the physical buttons, leave it touchscreen, leave it as automated as possible. And I love that both of them, for a capsule design, are going for the most high-tech, safe way to do it. Yeah, agreed, Sawyer. I mean, you actually flew the simulator on when you were down there, correct? Yes, and by that I mean I had my hand on a joystick and did nothing because the whole thing is automated. <laughs> <laughs> so technically I did in that the software is smart enough to fly itself, and that's exactly what it did. <laughs> again, this is revitalizing a lot of NASA itself, even though, again, these are not NASA missions. NASA is the customer. This has a huge role in them. The Johnson Space Center, like we were talking about, the room that... I was in with Robin when we visited for the special, uh, I believe it was uh, two years ago. Right. And that was the room where the space shuttle simulator was, where all of the shuttle mission simulations happened. And it was gone. All that was in there was commercial crew. So it's completely changing the layout of Johnson. And then at Kennedy, my goodness, Gene, you and I have been going there for years now. We've been down there for launches at least with Talking Space, since 2009, 2010. And the evolution is unreal. I mean, still just driving by the new Blue Origin facility on the way into the visitor complex, into the Space Center itself is crazy. And the one thing that I always found really interesting, and I've noticed this the last 
year or two I've been there, but didn't really understand it until this mission, is when you go to the security gate, if you are an employee or a member of the media with a badge, there's a sign that flashes. Date, temperature, don't bring weapons, don't be a terrorist, stuff right, like that. Right, right, One of the signs is, welcome to the Kennedy Space Center, a multi-user spaceport. Which, for the longest time, I'm like, okay, the Atlas, Delta, and SpaceX. What does that really mean? And I think seeing this mission really clarified that. And Bob Cabana, I think, understood the importance of that as well. Because I was asking him about that at uh, the press conference. And this was his answer, by the way. I think we've, we've solidified ourselves as a commercial base of operations when you look at all the commercial customers that we have uh, operating here now. So I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's just great, as I said earlier, to be able to see our commercial partners being successful, launching missions, soon launching crew to the International Space Station. I mean, that's the future. It, it's outstanding. I think Bob has really um, set the bar for NASA as a great example, right? How do we do our national missions but also support customers who have their own vision, right, and unite with them around these missions that we have? So at JSC, we've been looking at KSC as an example of how to do that. And so I think that's really important for the rest of NASA too. So it really is an evolution of the entire Space Center. It's, you know, utilizing these small launch companies, these big launch companies, and sharing these launch pads that were once NASA. And, you know, they talk about all these different historic launch pads. You hear them mention that a little bit of just the history that is now being used. I don't want to say taken over, but, you know, occupied now by these private companies and are taking what was once all NASA and branching it off into basically anyone who has the capital and the safety to do so. Landing Zone 1 uh, for SpaceX was essentially an old launch pad. One of, I believe, oh, I, I want to say um, launch complex, I want to say 16, I'm probably wrong, but I, I know it was one of the, the original launch complexes out there, and it just had stayed idle. It's the same thing with um, Launch Complex 39A because uh, I remember asking a question as long ago as uh, the uh, Curiosity mission when that was launching. They had a presentation for us on the uh, on what uh, was coming up and how they were turning Launchpad 39B into basically a clean pad kind of configuration that could be set up and used for any launch vehicle that you want to put up there and i remember asking okay great but what was the game plan for 39a they didn't know yet and when the lease came up you know the leasing idea for 39a came up we were like aghast here here was this iconic launch pad that once launched Apollo 11 basically to launch the first humans to set foot on on another world and here it was going to a commercial entity, and it wasn't something that we had a hard time trying to wrap our heads around. But when you really think about it, it was either that or this launch pad was just going to sit there and decay. And if you look at that fixed service structure that used to be used during the uh, the old shuttle days, uh, now it is it's. It looks super modern. I mean, Sawyer, you, I've only seen it in pictures, but Sawyer, you were there. 
you saw what this thing looked like and what it's tr been transformed into over the years since going in there. I mean, when we were first over there, the, the launch pad was kept in what they call, I guess, shuttle-ready condition. But even then, it was it, it, there, were, there were parts of it rusting and so on. It really wasn't not being taken care of all that well. SpaceX came in and just took that launch pad over, rehabilitated it, and got it to to another purpose and that purpose was to get crew to the to the international space station and i applaud them for their efforts i really do yeah i mean to see the evolution of it you and i saw it with a space shuttle on it right and then to see it go from that to the rotating service structure slowly being demolished in fact if you go back to some of our other launch episodes you can hear us kind of lamenting on that in a way but that's all gone seeing that thing now my goodness that is slick it it looks like a 21st century launch pad, finally. It looks like something that's ready to launch newer space. The spacecraft and the rocket match the launch platform, finally. Yeah. Not just aesthetically, but in terms of high-techness and how sleek they look. And it makes you feel, okay, we're getting ready to do something big. We're getting ready to make this finally look good again. And it's got that feel to it. Heck, that swing arm, seeing that thing up close... It looks like, you know, the end of it looks like what you'd normally see on a jet bridge going onto an airplane. But just that walkway looks so futuristic, looking through it, seeing people walking in it while we were at the launch pad. It's amazing and finally looks like a multi-user spaceport. Yeah, even even Bob Banken was saying that uh, he was really, really applauding the... Uh... Uh, that swing arm because it it kept the insects out. <laughs> he remembered what it was what is what it was like up there uh, during shuttle because he he has flown his share of shuttle missions, and uh, he was saying that uh, it it keeps the insects away and so on. So he, he's he's really really appreciative of the fact that it is now an enclosed uh, swing arm and an enclosed facility. So. Uh, it really does live up to the name, a 21st century launch facility. And as you pointed out, Sawyer, it's not just, you know, Blue Origin and SpaceX down there. There are other companies down there, too, that are that are trying to go ahead and, and make their way in in the space launch uh, business. And what I think Bob Cabana was really trying to say is the Kennedy Space Center is open for business. If I recall exactly from... Our tour uh, back in 2011, and I'm, I'm blowing off some dust here. Uh, he, it was well, it wasn't Cabana. It was it was our our tour guide that uh, basically said the way that firing room was going to be set up is it could be you could launch use that for about maybe three. I guess three or four separate launches at any given time. You could be preparing for one launch you know, in this one section, another one from another pad over here in this section and so on. They really wanted to go ahead and give vendors that might want to come in here and use these facilities to, you know, conduct a, a flight from the Kennedy Space Center, every option they possibly could have. And now I understand, now, you know, years later, you can understand the logic and what they were excuse me, what they were really, really trying to accomplish. And gosh darn it, it's actually working. And you can even see, as as your question was alluding to, Sawyer, how that's impacting the local economy. Because after shuttle was over, 
that place was essentially a ghost town. Nobody really knew what the future was going to hold. In fact, I kind of alluded to that looking at um, at Shuttle herself sitting there on, on the launch pad with all those clouds surrounding it and just wondering. It was, it was sort of a... a these clouds were sort of like clouds of uncertainty. We really didn't know where the program was going after SDS-135. Now we know, and it's going into a, an extraordinarily interesting direction. One thing I really remember is Mark Ratterman and I back in 2012 at the COTS 2 Plus demo mission for the cargo resupply version of the Dragon, the one that we know and love now. We were driving around Titusville just going, my goodness, this is a ghost town. It's dead. There were so many for sale signs. It looked desolate. And now the place is hopping. There's a lot going on. And one thing I find really interesting is that NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine acknowledged that. He acknowledged to everyone that, yeah, this whole area was in a bad place. We know it got really destroyed, essentially, economically after the end of Shuttle and he pointed out that there's a revitalization going on, and he made a very interesting claim, too. And let, let's just go ahead and hear him talking about the recovery now of Kennedy and its surrounding areas. Uh, this center was devastated, but because of the activities that have been going on here under Bob's leadership and previous NASA administrators, this center, the Kennedy Space Center, is thriving. And in fact, it's growing. And we've got commercial launches, not just Boeing and SpaceX, but... In the not too distant future, we're going to be launching the SLS with the Orion crew capsule uh, on a deep space mission all the way to the moon. We have a lot under development right now. In fact, you could argue we've got more under development right now than at any time, even during the Apollo era. So this is a great time for American space flight. So that seems a bit of an outrageous claim, but when you think about it, it makes sense of, you know, there being more innovation now than during the entire Apollo program. Because, yes, I mean... The vehicle assembly building was built for the Apollo program, which seems like huge innovation, but that itself is being modified to work with a whole bunch of different spacecraft in it now, including commercial companies. You've got the different launch pads that were being built originally for Apollo missions are now being completely redesigned for commercial crew as well. And even just the press site has been completely revitalized and everything inside it went from, oh, all NASA to, hey, there's a bunch of commercial crew stuff going on and we're going to promote it. And it really feels like NASA's promoting it. And it makes sense of him saying that there is more innovation going on now than Apollo. You know, it, this is something else too, that we've been trying to say for the longest time on this program as well, that, you know, people are, are saying, Oh gosh, darn it. NASA's not doing anything. We're not flying, blah, blah, blah. Are you kidding? We have actually got three, spacecraft not just one but three spacecraft in development that are coming along the pipeline one was the crew dragon which we introduced to the world just this past week the second one is the boeing cst 100 starliner and we also have orion waiting in the wings as well so you know i mean it it's an interesting time not only do we have Two commercial vehicles that, again, are owned by those companies. We are just sort of renting them, if you will, as paying customers. And they will provide the services to get our people to the International Space Station. And in turn, 
while that is all going on, on in the backdrop of that, we'll have the Orion spacecraft, which is set to go ahead and do the heavy lifting of exploration, or at least be part of that that equation to do the heavy lifting for for exploration. We do have, you know, Gateway coming up, knock on wood. We do have, um, you know, the Space Launch System in the pipeline again, knock on wood. But it it is still the, these are the things that are under development right now. So it's a very busy time. Not, I think things are are really starting to percolate again, and you're starting to see a real good revitalization of spaceflight here in, in this country. If nothing else, the commercial spaceflight at least is revitalizing, rejuvenating America's interest in space and probably the world as well. You know, people know that Americans used to fly into space. Not many of them realize that we still do and have been, and that when we do, it's with Russia, where seats are now approximately $80 million each. People don't realize that. So when they see this, they're like, my goodness, America's getting back into space again. And whether they're right or wrong on the actuality of it, yeah, in a way, America is getting back to space again with American rockets on American soil, and I think the fact that it's private companies or commercial companies that are doing it in cooperation with NASA it is so appropriate for 2019 and just so appropriate for people to understand that, hey, these are private ventures. Space isn't just your grandpa's thing anymore. It's not just your tax dollars going to waste. These are people who see this as a viable business, are making a lot of money off of it, and are putting on quite a show and bringing back pride to a country that has kind of felt defeat in space recently in a way. So a huge props to SpaceX. And I know Boeing will be doing the exact same thing very soon and going to give advanced props to them as well. But this is, this is bringing back space to America, even if it technically hasn't left to the rest of the public, it's bringing it back. Not only that, Sawyer, it's, it's actually new ideas. Both companies are bringing new ideas to the tables and new ways of doing things. So and NASA's learning from that. I mean, that was one of the other things that came out of all of those press conferences, that the collaboration between NASA, Boeing, and SpaceX has been enormous for all three entities. All three of them have learned something. Um, SpaceX has admitted they have it's made their people better engineers because of the collaboration. NASA, the same thing. It has made them better engineers as well. And, you know... You can only just build on that success. So, uh, gosh darn it, there's going to be a lot going on, a lot of people learning from each other, a lot of innovation happening, and there's going to, you can't help but be excited for the future at this point. Exactly. And I think that's the perfect way to end it on the start of something new. So, Gene, thank you so much for joining me tonight for this episode. Thanks, Sawyer. And again, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody who's listened listens to us over the uh, over the past few years. You did a bang up job on our behalf, and thanks for carrying the uh, the Talking Space banner into battle for uh, uh, for DM One. I really do appreciate it. I'm happy to do it. I'm very glad I was able to be there, and I'm also very glad it went on the first try because otherwise I was not going back down. So. <laughs> But yes, a huge congratulations to SpaceX and to NASA and to all the commercial crew companies that have worked so hard. We're finally getting somewhere. It's no longer a joke. It's no longer an if. It's now a 
when and it's happening and it's going to happen and we have the proof so i'd like to thank everyone for listening i'm glad i was able to take you along for the ride i hope you enjoyed it and until next time as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are and go crew dragon Thank you.